0: Awesome. Well, good morning. How many people actually own a copy of God's Word? How many brought one with you? Please take your Bibles this morning. I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Galatians this morning. You know, the Word of God is in a very practical way God's Word to our hearts today. This is how God speaks to us. This is how God informs us. This is ultimately, if we open the word of God with an expectation of hearing from him and a willingness to obey what we hear, this is ultimately how our lives are transformed into the likeness of his dear son, Jesus Christ. So having a Bible is a good thing. Having a Bible you open and read with an expectant heart of obedience is a life-transforming thing. So if you have your Bibles, do uh, turn with me to Galatians this morning, and we're going to be looking in the third chapter together. You know, um, the issue uh, that is at foot in the book of Galatians comes to a head in many ways today uh, in this book that the Apostle Paul has written. You see, 2,000 years ago, there was in Galatia, which is southern modern-day Turkey, there were a bunch of what's called false teachers who had infiltrated the churches that Paul had planted. And the essence of their teaching was this. In order to be right with God, to be a Christian, and in order to grow in your Christian life, it wasn't enough to trust in Christ alone. And through simple obedience, follow him. In addition to Jesus Christ, it was necessary for you also to embrace the old testament law the code of moses that you would not only embrace all 613 of its requirements and commands but you would then evidence your conviction and commitment by being circumcised and so the apostle paul has been writing to try and put to rest this pernicious lie that no 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 that is not how you become right with god and no that's not how you grow in christ The Mosaic law had a specific purpose for a specific time. But the Mosaic law has no bearing on the child of God in Christ today. That's Paul's contention. Now the challenge is this. But much of the Older Testament is dedicated to the law of God much of the time frame of all of judaism in the Old testament was dedicated to living this out and following this pattern and doing these things how can you say it has no bearing today that's what we're going to talk about this morning the apostle paul is going to share with us how the mosaic law fits in the plan of god and what value the mosaic law had in those days as well as the value that it still has in our lives and in our world today So today, that's what we're going to tackle together. We're going to consider the place in the plan of God and the purpose behind the Mosaic Law. So if you have your Bibles, this is the book of Galatians. All of it is actually on this slide. That's the nice thing about these Prezi presentations. Everything can fit in one place. We've already looked at chapters 1 and 2 together and we've considered the truth that my gospel is the gospel of grace according to the Apostle Paul. If you were not with us for this section of our study, I just want to invite you to go to our website, gracewaldorf.org. If you go there, you'll have our website and down the left-hand side, click on messages and you will see the messages that were given uh, over the last number of weeks and yes, months uh, to get us through this time. So my gospel is the gospel of grace and today... We're now in the second major section of the book of Galatians where Paul is talking about the fact that it is experienced, my message of the gospel of grace, it is experienced by faith alone and not by obedience to the law. This is the theological or doctrinal appeal appeal section. And so today we're honing in on this truth that the law had a limited role to play. And today we're going to see how this has bearing on even our lives today. The Mosaic law was given to reveal sin. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me. I feel the need to pray. I feel a sense of weakness in my spirit, and so I need the Holy Spirit to just envelop me. So please bow your heads with me. Let's pray together. And from here we will venture. Holy God. Thank you for the privilege of approaching you uh, as sinful people uh, solely on the basis of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Thank you that you say that your throne room is now accessible to us and is a place of grace and mercy to help in time of need. And so, Father, I ask for grace and I ask for mercy. Help me to communicate your truth in a clear and compelling way. And I just pray that the Holy Spirit would challenge each of us with its truths. My hope, Father, is as we leave here today, this morning, that we will leave different than when we first walked in. And that will be a result of your word coming to bear on our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit. Grace changes everything. And I pray today we might be changed. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray. In his worthy name, amen. Amen. Okay, Paul, how does this whole Mosaic law, how does this whole Abrahamic promise and covenant, how does all this work, how does all this fit, how does all this play together? Well, that's exactly what he's going to speak into today. As we begin by looking at verses 15 through 18, notice what the Apostle Paul says. He says, let me give you a human example Even with a man-made covenant or contract or agreement, I want you to know that no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. We'll talk about that in just a second. Now, the promises of God that were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say into offsprings in the plural, referring to many, but rather referring to one, and to your offspring, who is none other than Jesus Christ. Paul says, this is what I mean. The law, the Mosaic law, the code of Moses, which came 430 years afterward, after the promise given to Abraham, it in no way annuls a contract that was previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise And so as Paul is informing the churches in Galatia, as he's trying to beat back this pernicious lie of how the Mosaic law functions, what he's saying here, you could summarize it simply like this. The law in no way changed the promise. The law did not replace grace. God has always operated on the basis of grace to give people justification by faith. Always on the basis of grace. So if you kind of take what he's saying here and summarize it, it goes a bit like this. The contractual agreement of the Mosaic Law between the children of Israel and God came 430 years after the unconditional promise of God given to Abraham. Paul is saying, I want you to understand that the covenant of works, the Mosaic Law, in no way replaces or amends God's original covenant promise given to Abraham. And so what he's saying is, you know, we know this to be true even on a human level. Whenever people get together and they make agreements or contracts, once they're ratified, you don't come along with another contract and just displace it. And so, so once these things have been done, they're in force. And things don't annul that unless people are in agreement. You know, I think we could think of it maybe something like buying a car. <clears throat> so uh, we're interested in a new car. How many are interested in a new car? Yeah, I am too. You know, I'm always looking for a new car. I can't afford one, I don't buy one, but I always want a new one. That's just how that works. So, let's say I happen to go by a dealership. That's the first mistake. I go by the dealership and I drive onto the lot. I get out of the car and I start looking around and the salesman sees me. What's he do? Stay away? No way, man. Ooh, fresh meat. Let's see what happens. So, they rush over to me and I'm just I'm this this lamb being led to the slaughter. I'm just standing there looking and drooling over this vehicle. What a nice vehicle. How much is it? Well, let's not talk price right now. Let's just let you get in and touch it and feel it and enjoy it. So, hey, does, doesn't it look good? Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, look at that paint job. It's great. Oh, it's got so many layers of this and awesome. Okay, great. It looks really good. He goes, would you like to get in it? Oh, could I? Sure you could. He hands me the key, and I get open the door, and I pull back. And it, well, the first thing that hits you is the new car smell. Oh. There's something about that smell. I love that smell. You know what that new car smell really is? It's all the polymers and all the stuff in it actually giving off toxic gases. But we love that smell. It's really good. It's awesome. In fact, we actually make uh, these uh, refresh thingies that we hang in our old cars just to give us that new car scent. You know, we love the smell. So it looks good. Ah, smells good. And we get into it, and oh, feels good. It kind of conforms to us, and everything is a little tighter than our old car. Everything seems sharp and good. And so it looks good, smells good, feels good. And he says, go ahead and start it up. Okay, okay, here we go. (laughs) And you, you start it up, and you give it a little bit of rev, and the engine roars. Oh, it sounds good. Everything about this is awesome. This is a beautiful car. And I began by asking about the price, but now I just want to know where I sign on the line, right? That's how that works. They've hooked me, they got me. So, yes, yeah, so I go into the office and they say, okay, this is, these are the terms of the agreement. Uh, you have 60 months, five years to pay this off. Isn't that great? In the old, old, old days, it was two years, and then it was four years, and now it's five years. One of these days will be ten years, and so on and so forth. But yeah, a car, okay. So I got six years, and these are your payments all along the way. Okay, uh, what do I sign? What do I sign? Oh, okay, down here? Okay, I sign my name on that. And they sign, and we're good. He gives me the keys, away I go. And I'm driving around, having a good time, everything is great. But you know what? About six months into the uh, arrangement, this wonderful agreement, this ratified contract, about six months in, all of a sudden... It doesn't smell so good anymore. I think Junior in the back seat spilled his milk all over the carpet, and so now it's got that rancid carpet smell, you know. It's like, oh, gross, that stinks. And somebody left a diaper in the trunk. I know they did because this thing stinks. It no longer has that new car smell. All the newness is kind of wearing off. Now I sit in it, it just feels like a remembered feeling. It, 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 it's not new feeling. It's just a memory feeling now, and it's no longer new. And I get out, and I look at it, and it's dirty, and it's got scuff marks, and it, it's just, you know what? I'm not enjoying this anymore. So I start it up. I go back to the dealership six months in. I drive out of the lot, take the key out, walk up to the guy, and I say, thank you. I'm good. It was great. Here you go. And what's he going to say? Let me remind you of the contract. Do you see your signature? Yes. Do you see what it says? Yes. You have five and a half years more payments on this thing. No human cry no i don't want that but that's how it works a human contract works you sign on the dotted line you get what you signed up for and so the same thing works that way when god makes a covenant agreement with people and so he's talking here about the abrahamic covenant verse 16 now the promises were made to abraham and to his offspring And it doesn't say to many offspring, but rather one, and ultimately that offspring that the covenant promise was made about, and two, was Christ. And so what he's talking about is that God ratified a covenant with Abraham. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, you see the promises God made to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, you'll see the ratification of the contract, or the covenant. And then in Genesis chapter 17, you'll see where God gave circumcisions as a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. So as you go back though, you'll see how all of this plays out. But in chapter 15, we have the ratification of the covenant, and it's unique. Now, I actually walked through this a little bit uh, a couple of weeks ago, so I won't spend a lot of time here. But basically, God said this, Abram, what I want you to do is I want you to get a three-year-old heifer... And then I want you to get a three-year-old female goat. I want you to get a three-year-old ram. I want you to get a turtle dove. And I want you to get a pigeon. And I want you to take these animals, and I want you to cut them in half. Can you say, ooh? Ooh. Yeah, gross. So you cut them in half. Now, the interesting thing is, is that the word covenant comes from the word, the Hebrew word barith. bereith, which means to cut. And so a covenant means to literally cut a covenant. And so they would cut these animals in half and they would lay them aside. And, and so what would happen in the transaction is the two people who were having this, this agreement, this contract, this covenant, they would basically link arms and walk up between the cut apart pieces of animal. And what they were signifying is this. May this happen to me if I fail to uphold my part to you. And the other person in this, by walking through these pieces, was basically saying, may this happen to me if I fail to uphold my part of the agreement to you. And so two individuals would walk down through the middle of these pieces and they would seal the deal. They would ratify the covenant. And this is what God did with Abram, except God did it a little different. You see, when God made this promise to Abraham, he put nothing on Abraham. Abraham actually had no conditions for the promise that God had given to him, which is ultimately uh, the promise of the one to come, which is Christ. And so when we get later in in chapter 15, uh, verses 17 and 18, it says this, that God had already put a deep sleep on Abram. And it says, and after the sun went down, darkness fell. And Abraham had this vision, he had this dream that he saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. These are symbols of the presence of God. And they alone passed between the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham. Notice, it does not say that Abraham made a covenant with God. Normally, it's two people who make an agreement. But here, God alone was telling Abraham, this is on me, Abraham. God did not lay down any conditions for Abraham to meet. In fact, when the covenant was ratified, Abraham indeed was asleep. So this is called a covenant of grace. God made promises to Abraham, and Abraham uh, did not make any promises to God. He simply believed God. That's why this covenant is often referred to as an unconditional covenant. And it was ultimately the promise of the coming Messiah who would, uh, through, through simple faith, would give redemption and justification to all who believed. And so, here we have this ratification being done. Okay, so you know in human context, once the agreement's made, you don't change it. So God made this agreement to Abram, and he made it and it was all on God, and this promise was given to him, and Abraham simply believed God, and then he was declared righteous. Now notice what he said. What does this mean? What does this now have to do with the law? How does it affect this? The law came 430 years afterward, and it in no way annuls a covenant previously ratified by God. So as to make the promise void... For if the inheritance comes by the law of Moses, it's no longer by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Not that he would keep anything, he would simply believe. And so here we have the promise of God in Genesis chapter 15 ratified. By the time you get to Exodus 20, where God gives the law, 430 years have passed. And so what Paul is saying is this. They ran concurrent. The law didn't abrogate. The law didn't add to. The law didn't annul the Mosaic promise or the Abrahamic promise. They ran concurrent for a purpose and a season. And then the law was done when Messiah came. And so this is what he's saying. This is how the law fits into the plan and purpose of God. So the law did not replace grace. The Abrahamic covenant was only by a it was a promise given by faith alone. So the question then is, well then, what, roles, what role does the law play? For what purpose was it ultimately given? So the law did not replace grace, but rather the law reveals our need for grace. The law reveals our need for grace. Notice, Paul says in verse 19, why then the law? So we have the uh, Abrahamic covenant, 430 years prior to the giving of the Mosaic law, and and it ran concurrent, but, but what then is the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions. We'll get back to that. Notice, it was added until, it was added until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, which is Jesus Christ. So it had a temporary nature. The law was never an ongoing, indefinite, unconditional covenant like the Abrahamic promise was. So it was added until Christ would come. And then we have this really fascinating section here where it says this. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Who knows what that means? Can I be frank with you? Nobody's sure what that means. These have been called a couple of the most obscure verses in the entire word of God. People are not sure exactly what Paul's talking about there, how the angels play out and how, how, how all this plays together. In fact, there are more than 300 different interpretations of what this could possibly mean. So what I thought I would do with the remainder of our time together this morning, I thought we would investigate all 300 of those to see which one actually has... No, I'm just kidding. We won't do that. But the good thing about this is, guess what? Uh, This doesn't actually uh, create a problem in the understanding of what Paul was trying to put forward. While we may not fully understand what he meant by this verse and a half here, that won't affect the overall meaning. Because he goes on to say this, Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would have indeed come through the law. But it couldn't do that. Why couldn't it do that? Why can't the law give life? What's wrong with this thing? Why can't it bring life? Because it is a conditional covenant. God said, if you do this, you will be blessed. If you don't do this, you will be cursed. And guess what happened to Israel? Ultimately, they were cursed because it, they were incapable of living up to this. You see, the whole point behind the law, why then the law, is that it was added because of transgressions. You see, sin has been around since Adam and Eve. But sin has not always been recognized as being sinful. Sin has not always been understood as being an actual offense against God. And so along about the time when God made this covenant relationship with Israel, with Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20, along about that time, God now was being specific. The things that many of you have been doing, the lives that you have been living, and many of the things that you have been taking for granted, I'm now going to take you to task on. And I'm going to clarify exactly how You are living in opposition to God. The law makes sin sinful. That's the purpose of the law. Let me see if I can give you kind of a a homey little illustration. Maybe this will help. Remember I bought a car a few minutes ago? I got five and a half years of payments left on this crazy thing. Well, I'm just going to enjoy it to the max since I have to own this thing and pay so much on it every month. So what I'm going to do is it's a beautiful fall day. How many like the fall? My favorite time of the year. Beautiful fall day. Sun is out. Birds are singing. So I put down all the windows on the car, and I'm driving along, and I got my music turned way up, and I'm just having a great time, and I'm driving straight ahead, and, you know, I'm driving the speed limit plus the forgivable 10. You know what I'm talking about? And maybe a few more. But you know, hey, I'm, I'm, so I'm driving along, my music's blaring, and there goes a, a speed limit sign 55, and I look down, I'm doing 70. It's okay, because everybody else is doing 70 with me, and there goes that idiot going 85, right? You know how that is. I'm not going that idiot speed, I'm just breaking the law by about how many miles? 15. That's a little much, but it's okay, I'm drafting with all these other vehicles, we're all together in this, right? Hey, everybody else is doing it, why not me? And so I'm driving down the road, and we're just having this great time, listening to the songs. We're all doing this thing together, and it's coming very natural. I'm enjoying it. I'm whistling. This is a great day. It's beautiful. And all of a sudden... He's a big one too (sighs) Guess what just happened The law caught me You see I was going along Having a great time Doing the same thing everybody else is doing Simply doing what comes naturally I'm feeling really good When all of a sudden out of nowhere This policeman comes up behind me And flicks on his lights How many ever been there? time for confession yes oh yeah you know it's amazing what happens in that moment isn't it you're driving along having a good time and then all of a sudden those blue lights kick on and the siren kicks up and your legs turn to rubber you haven't noticed that and your gut goes like this and you're, you all of a sudden your eyes get wide and you start sweating and you take your foot off the accelerator but you don't put it on the brake because that's too obvious it's like you're really speeding if you do that yeah we've been there done that yeah i know and, and, and so what the officer does is he walks up to me and he goes, sir, is there a fire? And <laughs> I'm like, no, sir, there's not a fire. But me and all my friends were doing the same thing, officer. Yeah, that doesn't work. I carved you out. Yeah, but, but, but that doesn't seem fair. I'm sorry I caught you. That's what the law does. The law takes an infraction against the code and it makes it guilty it it causes us to say gotcha and so this is what the law of god does so many of the things that we do in life are simply natural things We're, we're simply living our lives everybody else is doing the same thing i'm not really hurting anybody what's the problem when all of a sudden the law says gotcha gotcha and you know when the law catches you you never feel quite the same again Look at that thug. If I saw that dude driving down the road, I'd pull him over too. So this is how the law works. This is what the law does. The law catches us doing what we normally do, doing the same thing that everybody else is doing. But what the law does is the law says you're guilty. You've broken God's standard. You've broken God's law. And you say, well, that seems really harsh, Pastor Bill. I mean, come on, really? We're just living life. We're just making decisions, just doing choices. You know, I've got a vision of where I want to be, and I'm kind of going down that road, and I'm kind of living my life. I've got a, a plan, and, you know, there's a few things over here and over here I'm not real proud of. I'm not real excited about those things. But this is my goal, and I'm just living life. And along comes the law. And it says this. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other God besides me. Do you mean? Living my own life, doing my own thing, being an independent unit, making my own choices. You mean I'm playing God with my life? Do you see how this works? The law of God makes sin sinful because it acknowledges it for what it truly is in the eyes of God. It doesn't just say that. It also goes on to say something like this. And you shall not make for yourselves any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in, in heaven above or on the earth beneath or what is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them and serve them. Now, what it's talking about here is making idols. And you say, phew, we haven't got that one to worry about, do we? We don't make idols today. I mean, I don't have a Buddha in my home that I bow down to and worship. I don't have a little Hindu temple thingy with some fruit and some incense on it. I don't do that. No, our idols in in our materialistic North American culture are a little different than they used to be. Our idols today can be virtually anything. An idol is whatever takes up most of your attention and you give most of your life and energy to. And now for some of us, the idol in our lives happens to be our house. Think about it for a second. You know, we have this place and it's, you know, it's, it's an asset. God bless me with it. I am jo- I'm so happy to have it. But I want to make sure I, I, I increase the value of this asset. So we're always thinking about how do I make it better? How do I make it better? So we spend all our time watching HGTV, right? Yes, yeah, house hunters and, 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 you know, the brothers. What's the brothers' names? Scott and whatever his face is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The brothers, you know, and then they well, wow, look at that kitchen remodel. That's awesome. You know, my kitchen would be so much nicer if I had it remodeled. I'm tired of this quarry and I want granite. You know, this is this is what we do. And so we put investments of time and energy, thought-wise and, and money-wise, into our homes and we build them up and make them nice. And you know what, my master bedroom just isn't good enough. I need a walk-in closet. It has to be there because that's what you need. And you know, my yard is kind of ugh, I need to put in a nice porch out back and I need to do all kinds of landscaping. And what happens is this, the very thing that we thought we own now owns us. You see, it says to us, as we make more and more investments in it, now go to work and pay for me. I thought I owned you, no, no, no. That house is now the idol that rules us. And we now serve it by going to work to pay for it, by giving it over to our our energies of our thinking, by giving our attention to it, by using up our resources in it. It now becomes an idol according to the law. You see, the law makes sinful sin. But I'm just living life. I'm just going along. I'm not really doing anything wrong. Everybody else is doing it. Yeah, I know. Just like me speeding down the road. Guilty. 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 And you know, what's interesting about God's law is that it's not just some impersonal thing. You know, uh, when you go to court to pay your fine for your speeding ticket, if you choose to go that way, uh, the judge is going to sit there, he's going to whip open the legal code, he's going to put his finger down the line of the book a little bit and say, oh, there we go, this is the one you broke. Uh, Okay, he'll slam the gavel down and say, pay... $250, whatever it is. You see, it doesn't really affect the judge. It's just an impersonal code made up by some lawmakers at the Capitol, and he just has to enforce it. But when we break the law of God, this is not impersonal to God. This is not other than God. Actually, the law of God is an expression of the character of God. And so what we understand when we violate the law is we violate God. When we break the law, we end up breaking the heart of God. When we create an offense against the code, we actually offend God. It says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, these words. It says that we are the enemies of God. Wow, that seems awful strong. We are the enemies of God. No, I'm not. I'm just living life. I'm just doing what I do. I'm just going along like everybody else. What do you mean I'm an enemy of God? The word enemy has the idea to live in opposition or in open rebellion of. And we don't know that until the law comes along and says, gotcha gotcha, I you. Gotcha. And so along comes the law, and the function of the law is to help us see our lives in light of who God is. And the law says, I gotcha. Theologians have a term that they like to use with reference to the nature of man. And not only is man's nature fallen, but another word that they will often use is depraved, depravity. Now, some of us are really turned off by the thought that how, how could I ever be considered depraved? I mean, I'm basically a good person. I basically do good things. Jesus came along and cleaned up a little bit of stuff, but he didn't have a whole lot to clean up because I'm basically a decent person, right? Beg to differ. The law says otherwise. The law says that much of what I do is an open infraction and rebellion against the nature and person of God. And so we are, in a very real way, depraved, and we are enemies of God. Think of it this way. Every breath of air that we take without ever thanking God, every beat of our depraved, sinful hearts, every thought of our twisted, me-oriented, focused minds... Every one of those things, the very air that I breathe, the very things that I do, I'm actually living in open opposition to God, and I am an enemy of the Holy One. See, Pastor Bill, that's a little over the top, don't you think? I think we think that, because we think we're basically okay. Let me, let me see if I can tackle it from a little, another angle here, real quick. Do fish know they're wet? I think not. I think not. You see, they live and move and have their being in, in this medium called water. And all they know is water. They don't feel gravity quite so heavy because they have the buoyancy of water. They feel it going through their gills. They breathe that way. So they, they live their lives in water, and I don't think fish know they're wet. But let's say an angler went out there, tossed out a nice lure, and started clicking the lure around, and it ca- catches the fish's attention. And it swallows the hook all of a sudden, now he's caught. And what he had known is now going to be changed because he's now dragged along against his will and ultimately he's taken out of the water and he's placed on the dock where he's now flipping and flapping all over the place because now he's feeling the full weight of gravity on him that he had not known because all he ever knew was water. That, in a very real way, is what the law of God does to us we live in sin we live in a world that is a wash in it and bathed in it we walk in it we live in it and what happens is the law of god comes along and it says i caught you and all of a sudden ow and then we start to feel the weight of the gravity of the wrath of god that is committed to me because of my sinfulness and this is very uncomfortable we're a bit like that fish on the dock we're out of our element And that is, I think, a good illustration of the reality that the law of God is trying to help us to see. We are depraved. And God is holy. Holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the robe of His train fills the temple and the whole earth is filled with His glory. And Isaiah the prophet, in Isaiah chapter 6, had this manifestation of the vision of the person of God. And in light of who God is, his response was, whoopee! Right? Woe is me. That's the proper response to the realization of who we are in light of who God is. Think of it this way. The Mosaic law was given To make sin sinful. To clarify that what we do in our lives in a very natural way, living our lives how we think is best, doing what everybody else seems to be doing, doing what seems to feel good, what seems right in our own eyes and mind, that actually it is a declaration that we are separated from God and depraved in relationship to Him. That's what the law was given for. That's what the law was designed to do. And according to Paul, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 22, he says this, that the scripture, the Mosaic law, imprisons everyone and everything under sin. The Mosaic law's goal, its purpose, is to catch us and to condemn us and ultimately to imprison us as enemies of God awaiting judgment. That's what the goal of the law is. This is what Paul said in Romans chapter 3. Listen to what he says concerning this thing called the law. He says there is none righteous. No, not one. No one really understands. No one really seeks after God. Everyone has turned aside. Everyone has altogether become worthless. No one does good. Not even one, Paul says in Romans chapter 3. Our throat is an open grave. Our tongues are used to deceive and get our own way. The venom of snakes is under our lips as we bite other people and say cursed things. Our mouths are full with curses and bitterness. Our feet are swift to shed blood. Our paths are nothing more than ruin and misery. Look back in your life and see the path that we've trod. The way of peace we have not known. Why? Because there is no fear of God before their eyes. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth might be stopped. But, what about, I was only, but, no excuses that the whole world may be held accountable to God why Romans 3 23 for all have sinned and have come short of the glorious standard of God and the wages of our sin is death this is the purpose and the function of the law the law was given to eternally eternally condemn us before an eternal God. Why? That seems terribly harsh. It seems terribly cruel. It seems very hard. Well, I think a man by the name of John Stott understands how this works. He says this, It is not until the law has bruised and beaten us that we will admit the need for the gospel to bind up our wounds. It's not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us that we will yearn for Christ to set us free. It's not until the law has condemned and killed us that we will call upon Christ for justification in life. It's not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves that we will ever believe in Jesus. It's not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we ever turn to the good news of the gospel found in Christ and be raised to heaven. Paul said this, the law is not contrary to the promise of God. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would have come by the law, but that wasn't its purpose. The scripture, the law, imprisons everyone and everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who will believe. The law is not contrary to the gospel. The law anticipates the gospel. It helps us to realize our need for the gospel. And it isn't until until finally we see our need of Christ that we end up turning to Jesus Christ. There's an old story uh, written by a man by the name of John Bunyan. It's a famous classic called Pilgrim's Progress. Ever heard of it? The book opens with these words. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, much like many of us live in the wilderness of the world, I happened upon a certain place, and I lay down in this place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. I dreamed, and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place, looking away from his own house with a book in his hand. And a great burden was upon his back. I looked, and I saw him open the book and read. And as he read, he wept, and he trembled. And no longer being able to contain himself, he finally broke out in a lamentable cry. What shall I do? Woe is me. A short while later, a man, uh, this man, Pilgrim, encountered the evangelist. Who said, why are you crying? And the Pilgrim said, sir, I have perceived by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die. And after that, there is judgment to come. The evangelist then pointed the pilgrim toward a gate in the distance and to a light beyond it on a hill. And with great burden on his back and the book in his hand, pilgrim started off towards that hill crying out, Life, life, eternal life. The burden on pilgrim's back was his sin. The book in his hand was the Bible. And the hill towards which he journeyed was none other than Calvary. It was in reading God's word that he learned God's law condemned him to death and hell because of his sin. And it was that knowledge of sin and judgment that drove him to the cross of Christ. Where the penalty for his sin was paid in full and complete forgiveness is offered. Why the law? The law was given for us to go to Calvary. The purpose behind the law was that we would be driven in our sin to find a Savior. One who has taken our penalty. One who has paid the cost. One who has taken all of the wrath of God on himself. You know, it, just, it, it floors me. Think about this real quick with me. I know the time's getting shy, but I just want to share this with you. As I was putting this together this week, it hit me afresh and anew. Think about this. God creates humanity. And God in creating humanity knew full well that humanity, shortly after Adam and Eve were put on the earth in the garden together, would sin. And then God was the one who gave Moses the Ten Commandments. So God gave to Moses the very infractions to reprove our sin to ourselves. But the same God who created us and gave Moses the Ten Commandments is the same God who showed up on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he comes, and he says, I didn't come to, to do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law. So Christ goes on in this life. In three in, in the 30-some-odd years, he was here to live it perfectly. And at the end of his life, he goes to the cross. And it says in Colossians chapter 2 that he took the ordinances that were against us, and he nailed them to his cross. And there, the God who created us gave us the law to condemn us, goes to the cross to pay the very price that condemns us. And you get it all forgiven. And his righteousness, too. By coming to the cross and admitting your fallenness and saying, Jesus, thank you for dying for me. You see, that's why they call it grace. God did everything necessary to put a sinful people back in a right way with himself. And all he says is, come and believe, and you will be given eternal life. You see, the law could never do that. All the law could do was condemn us, imprison us, so that we would yearn to be set free, and we would find Jesus. My friends, that is the Mosaic Law. That is its purpose. I'm going to close with two quick thoughts, and then we'll be done. Thought number one, and this is for those of us who know Jesus and have walked with him for some time. I I want to share this truth with you because I think it really hits home to the reality of these things. Um, And it's this. You will never see how amazing grace is until you understand how depraved you are. I think most of us think that we're pretty good people. I think most of us think pretty highly of ourselves. I think most of us think that Jesus kind of came alongside us and kind of helps me a little bit along in my life, and I, I just basically do okay with my God. And I don't think we understand the, the reality of our own depravity in the lostness in which Christ found us. My, my daughter gave me this thought. She said, Dad, most believers are kind of like people who look at a cityscape from, from a human perspective. We see the tall buildings, and we see the short buildings. And we think of ourselves often as the tall buildings. We're we're moral people, we're good people, we do all these nice things. And we think of others, especially those people who do terrible things as short buildings. And we're so much better than them, so we look down on them. But she said, Dad, that's not how God sees things. God doesn't look on the human plane. God comes over the top, but he looks down, and everything looks exactly the same. It's only when we have this understanding of ourselves that we really appreciate the cost for our sin. Jesus said, he who is forgiven much will love much. I think if we understand our own depravity, I think that we would fall on our knees and say, thank you, Jesus, here is my life. Thank you for giving me yours. By the way, when we close, amazing grace, please. Yes. Yes. And then secondly, for those who are sitting here today and you have yet to run to the cross, you have yet to forsake your way, your truth, your life, all the things that you think you're about, if you would just let those go and fall on the, cross, on the ground at the foot of the cross, allow Moses to chase you, to put faith in Jesus, to be rescued from your sin. This is the reality and the truth of the law of Moses. We are condemned apart. May you today find in Christ your Savior, your forgiver, your lover, the one who gives you his righteousness. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. I want to invite the band to come up and close us. And by all means, amazing grace, my chains are gone. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for giving us the truth. And I think sometimes we can't handle the truth. But the reality is the law makes sin sinful and it merely exposes the reality of our own hearts and our lives. And Father, I pray for those of us who know you, who love you, that we would see in light of ourselves, uh, that we would be indeed um, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, that we would understand our own wretchedness before a holy God, and that we would yearn to praise our Savior. And Father, I pray right now for somebody who may be here today who has yet to embrace Christ with their life, that today would be the day that they would run from the judgment of God and find a Savior in Jesus Christ. Even now, if you're in that place, I just want to encourage you to pray something like this. Dear God, dear God, woe is me. I am a sinner and I am condemned but I thank you that Jesus Christ came to forgive me of my sin by paying my penalty on the cross. Right now, dear God, by simple faith, I let go of my way, my truth, and my life, and I embrace Him who is the way, the truth, the life, by faith. Thank you, O God, for the gift of eternal life found in Jesus Christ alone. And all God's people said? Stand with us for the closing song.